This is the business of sports. The International Olympic Committee is facing a crisis. Which sport would you point to and say, put your money here? Where the money is flowing inside sports around the globe. Has NASCAR's business engine lost some horsepower? Now I'm paying 5 or 10% what I used to pay to buy the whole team. Michael Barr. Nothing like a cheap hot dog, which is what you should get. Scott Soshnick. How do you put your brand outside of the United States? How do you capture fans around the world? Bloomberg Business sports on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports. And we will talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. He represented Tom Brady against the NFL in Deflategate. We speak with attorney Jeff Kessler. So the issue with Tom Brady in a number of the other discipline cases that the union is challenged in recent years in the NFL is an abuse of power where fair procedures are not applied Fair results are not obtained, and the existing rules are ignored. Plus, the first professional sports team is coming to Vegas. We'll talk with one of the owners of the NHL's Golden Knights, Gavin Maloof. You can't sequester a customer 24-7. You've got to be able to do other things. You can't be in a casino gambling away for 24 hours. That was kind of the old way of thinking, to be honest. And now you have to give people options. There has to be entertainment. You have to give them a reason to come to Las Vegas. But first, we look at our top three business stories of the week. The sale of baseball's Miami Marlins, and there are some pretty familiar names on there, Michael. Derek Jeter and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush are among those bidding for the club. The sale for a sports franchise was a main topic that we discussed on the premiere of Bloomberg Business of Sports with Sal Galatioto, the founder of Galatioto Sports Partners. Let's face it, they're not making any more of these, right? Or they're making very few of these. So if you can get into a premier brand and you're viewing it as a long-term investment, look at the history of these investments and how well people have done who've invested in these things. It, it always looked like they overpaid, but within five years, you notice, no, they didn't overpay. Now, whether they overpay on this one depends on the final number. The Kushner family was close on a deal for one six. The number came down. I'm talking to a lot of bankers who would be surprised if this tops a billion dollars because this franchise loses money. Yeah, but those TV rights, you can't forget those. Those things, that sends the whole thing sky high. And this was one of the clubs, according to a survey, according to Forbes magazine, that was at the bottom end of value for a baseball yeah, team. Yeah, about $970 million, so that's below that billion-dollar threshold. But there are bidders. Quad Capital's Wayne Rothbaum is a bidder. Jeter and Jeb Bush, they are in talks to combine their bid. So do they put their purchase power together? But still the question becomes, who's cutting the big check? We don't know the money behind them. Who is cutting that big check? There are only 30 of these things. That's so the key. I have to say, it wouldn't surprise me if I did see this at a billion dollars. Well, even if it doesn't, let's say it's close. If it goes over, great for Jeff Loria, the New York art dealer who owns the club. But he only paid about $200 million for the franchise when he bought it. Either way, as an asset valuation... This is a pretty good return on investment for Jeff Loria if this thing trades. As my 13-year-old son would say, they're about to get paid. Well, that brings us to the NFL and the White House. Earlier this week, President Trump welcomed the world champion New England Patriots minus Tom Brady to the White House. Here's Patriots owner Bob Kraft. It's a distinct honor for us to celebrate what was unequivocally our sweetest championship with a very good friend, and somebody whose mental toughness and strength 
I greatly admire. There has been a really close relationship between Donald Trump and the Patriots, and it starts with Kraft. He has dined at Mar-a-Lago with the president. And remember, Brady brought all the attention when he had the Make America Great Again hat in his locker. So people were asking about him incessantly. Now, he was one who didn't make it to the White House, citing some family issue that popped up. He didn't specify what it was, but Brady was not there. And by the way, a reminder, the Kraft Group, a firm associated with the Patriots owner, gave a million dollars to the Trump campaign. And Robert Kraft is not alone among the NFL owners. Four others also gave a million bucks each, according to the figures that we have. The Jets, Woody Johnson, the Redskins, Daniel Snyder, Robert McNair of the Houston Texans, and the Jaguars, Shahid Khan. They all made donations in 2016. Interesting. Shad Khan, the only Muslim owner in major U.S. pro sports. Now, he did disagree with Trump on the travel ban. So it's not as if that makes the president immune from criticism from those who are giving money to his campaign. I wonder if Giselle Bunsen had anything to do with Tom Brady not going to the White House. Tom wasn't saying. <laughs> we know he cited a family issue. But it, it, it was interesting to see, one by one, the players that did seem to object who said, I'm not going, I'm not going. I think the Patriots said there were 43 players this time, 45 the last time. But it just seemed as if the players, one by one, were saying, we don't want to throw our support behind this. And our third story, North Carolina is back to doing business with the NCAA. It sure is, and that was a significant economic blow to North Carolina. It wasn't just the collegiate championships. And let's not forget, this isn't just the ACC title games and basketball and football. There's a myriad number of sports where they have championships in Carolina, as well as, on the professional side, the NBA pulled the All-Star game, went back to New Orleans instead. The NBA, like the NCAA, Adam Silver said, okay, they're now back on the docket. We, we may go back there in 2019. And by the way, not everybody is happy. This is why they call it a compromise with this agreement, but it was enough for the NCAA to say, okay, we'll come back to North Carolina. This is the Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio with Scott Soshnick and Michael Barr. In just a few minutes, we will speak with one of the owners of an NHL team that's coming to Las Vegas, Gavin Maloof. But first, he's one of the most powerful sports attorneys in the world. Jeffrey Kessler has represented players' unions in almost every professional sports league. He also represented Tom Brady against the NFL in Deflategate, and he is now taking on the NCAA. Jeff, welcome to the program. appreciate you being here. Now, you and I have known each other for a very long time. It seems when it comes to the relationship between owners and players, labor and management, nothing has changed. Has it changed, or do we keep seeing the same cycle? Oh, I think it changes all the time. The people involved change. The economy changes. Uh, the mood of the country changes. Uh, I think a lot of things change. The factors that influence things stay the same, but the combination and what that yields, I think, is often different. But what remains the same, and I'm guessing here, you tell me, but what remains the same is both sides always seem to want more money. Well, it's a business negotiation. Uh, you know, let's be very clear. Uh, sports is a business. And so, like any type of labor management dispute, which is what this is, uh, management would like to pay less and labor would like to make more. Now, what's different about sports 
is that there are all sorts of other public elements of the game that sometimes come into the negotiations, but at its core, it's still a labor management dispute, no matter how you look at it. Jeff, to put it into perspective, and coming from a, a layman's term, yes, I'm a fan of sports, and I'll root for any team, this and that, whatever, but you just said it, it is a business. And once you put it in that perspective, it takes on a different tone. Yes, and you know, I think something that fans have come to appreciate over the past 25 years is that it is a business. Now, by the way, I don't think that undermines the game. I don't think that it undermines the attractiveness of the product that's produced. Uh, entertainment is a business, too. Uh, you know, but people love the Disney movies and Star Wars. But guess what? They pay their actors, and it's a business. Unlike, let's say, an airline or a Home Depot, the difference, however, in sports is that the customers seem to be addicted to the product. No matter how badly you treat them, they keep coming back. Do you see that? I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> and I don't think fans are so badly treated either. Uh, I think it is true that fans will love their sports and root for their teams and come back even when the business issues intrude on the sports pages. Uh, but I don't know that that's any different uh, than people come back uh, and buy uh, their cars if there's a strike at an automobile factory. When you talk about negotiations, can you put it in perspective for us? It's a bit of a dance. What What is the toughest part of the negotiations? The toughest part of a negotiation is that it's multilateral. And by that I mean, so I am generally, uh, certainly always, uh, in collective bargaining in sports on the player's side. Looking across the table at the owner's side, there is a multifaceted group of owners who don't always agree with each other, who don't always have identical economic interests. Uh, and the difficulty frequently negotiating is trying to understand the dynamics on the other side. Uh, and what's affecting the responses that are coming back, how skillful their commissioner is and their lead negotiator is will affect that dynamic. Now, on the player side, there's a multilateral group as well. Uh, there are star players. There are journeyman players. There are players uh, in between. Uh, sometimes there are retired player interests that are being discussed. So there's a whole group of constituencies that have to be balanced together on the player side. So I think finding the core consensus on each side and understanding where the other side has the ability to move and not move is a lot of what's most challenging in these negotiations. We are chatting with attorney Jeff Kessler. He's a partner at Winston & Strawn. And Jeff, do these negotiations get easier or more difficult as the dollar figures go up? The more money there is in the table, the easier the deal is. <laughs> Any negotiator will tell you that. Uh, in our last NBA negotiation, which we just did an extension uh, just this past January, uh, it was completed. Uh, that was immensely helped by the fact that the NBA uh, is in a boom period right now for its revenue and growth. 
that makes it much easier for both sides to find common ground. You also talk about the NCAA, which you were a participant involved in those negotiations. It comes down to simply, are the collegiate athletes, do they deserve a piece of the pie like the universities are getting? Well, I certainly think so. And and I want to be clear, what we're talking about is not all collegiate athletes. Uh, we're not talking about Division three rowers. You know, we're, we're not talking about the volleyball team. We're talking about the teams that generate hundreds of millions of dollars for their universities. So if you're at UT, you're going to make $200 million this year off of your football team and your basketball team, essentially. Okay, maybe a little bit out of the women's team as well. Those revenues right now go to the coaches, they go to the athletic directors, they go to everybody but the players. We in the University of Alabama, we have a weight coach who makes $500,000 a year, which is more than the university president makes. And the players can't be allowed to get even the smallest sums to compensate them for generating these revenues beyond the very limited restrictions of the NCA rules. And on top of that, there was a time when you had the video games that were out there with the likeness of some of these NCAA athletes. Oh, of course. That's a whole different issue, which is that third parties were utilizing their rights and they couldn't get compensated for that. All that the players in, are looking for in those sports and all we're looking for in the case that I'm involved in is to let the schools make choices. No one wants to force any school to do anything. But if a group of schools want to get together and be fair to their athletes because of how much revenue is generated, what's wrong with that? If another group wants to be like the Ivy League and say, we're not even going to grant athletic scholarships, that's okay, too. Jeff, the NCA seems to be adopting some of the changes you seek. Are we heading towards paying players? Yeah, there's been some small progress, and uh, the significance of the small progress is two things. One, yes, the NCA has started to recognize that maybe the power conferences and those generating the revenues should and can be able to do more. So they sort of crossed the Rubicon on that principle. Uh, the second important point is every time the athletes get a little more, okay, ratings go up or stay the same, attendance goes up or stays the same, sponsorships go up. Uh, all the, the measures of fan demand are completely unaffected by this because the reality is if you're a fan of, of, of Duke basketball, you could care less if the coach made $1 million less and spread it to the team. That doesn't affect your experience as a fan. People say, in contrast to that, the athletes, they're getting paid, so to speak, because they're getting scholarships to go to the school for free. Your thoughts? Yeah, that is something that is always said. And the point is, okay, uh, the question is, let the schools decide if that's enough. Because as we all know, many of these athletes don't graduate. At some of these schools, they're given very little help to graduate, you know, or they're actually put into classes that don't advance their graduation. 
taxes and the cost to the school of a scholarship. You know, they like to say it's the cost that if you were paying your tuition. Well, we know that's not the cost to the school of the scholarship. What it is, it's, first of all, it's another seat. If they have an empty seat in their classroom, they get to sit in the classroom. They're not hiring additional faculty or building additional classrooms for these students. It's a marginal cost. Let the schools decide if that's fair or not. You know, Paul Tavibu, former commissioner of the, the NFL, is now the chairman of Georgetown, uh, was at a conference uh, before the Knight Commission, which looks into college sports. And Paul put out, I thought, a very interesting idea of what would be wrong of letting a school like Georgetown decide that they were going to set aside a sum of money, let's say $25,000 each year, that the student advanced towards graduation. And if the school student then graduated within, let's say, six years and got his degree, he would get a bonus on top of that. What would be bad about that? What value would that undercut? What a difference it would make in the life of that student. In the six degrees of separation of Jeff Kessler, Georgetown hired Patrick Ewing as its basketball coach. Patrick was the president of the union in the NBA when you represented them in 98. And you mentioned the NFL. Let me segue there. You also represented Tom Brady in his fight against the NFL. This wasn't necess- uh, necessarily money. Was this about power? Is that this, the underlying current in all this? There's, there's money and power and control? Well, it, it, it's, it's about fairness and due process. So the issue with Tom Brady and in a number of the other discipline cases that the union has challenged in recent years in the NFL is an abuse of power where fair procedures are not applied, fair results are not obtained, and the existing rules are ignored. That's what the fight was uh, for the union about the flake gate. And if you don't stand up for every one of your members, whether it's Tom Brady or it's the last man on the practice squad, then you do not have rights for any of your players. That's what that fight was about. To play devil's advocate, though, some people say the players brought this upon themselves because when they negotiated the last contract, this is what they decided. They decided to have all of this go through the NFL commissioner and not much of a trickle-down effect. Okay, so let's go through the history, all right? This, this idea of the commissioner being the one to review player discipline uh, for things uh, like off-the-field conduct and these types of issues goes back to the very beginning of the NFL. It had nothing to do with the 2011 CPA negotiation. The only thing you could say about the 2011 CPA negotiation is that it didn't change. So why does it become an issue now? And the reason it's become an issue now is that the current commissioner is the first one to wield this power and use it in a way that the players consider to be fundamentally abusive and unfair. Prior to 2012, you never heard about this issue. All right, thanks, Jeff. That's Jeff Kessler, a partner at Winston & Strong. This is the Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio with Scott Soshnick and Michael Bob. Thanks for joining us. We are here each and every week for you at this time. We now turn our attention to Las Vegas getting their very first professional sports team. I sure do, Michael. The Golden Knights will be skating in the NHL next season. Gavin Maloof is one of the team's owners. You may remember the name. 
Maloof. They own the Sacramento Kings. Gavin, thanks for joining us. Question I have for you is, are you excited to be back in professional sports? We're excited. We're, we've, we worked on acquiring an NHL team with Bill Foley for uh, five years. We actually brought the idea to uh, the commissioner, uh, Bettman. When we first approached him, we actually were still owners of the Kings. And we thought, God, wouldn't it be a great idea to have a professional team in Las Vegas? And, and we went and saw Gary, Joe, and I. And he didn't say no the first meeting. So I, I thought, you know, at least we had a chance. That sounds a little different from what we used to hear five, ten years ago. It was Vegas, no way. What changed? The proliferation of gambling throughout the country. Remember, there's there's some sort of gaming in probably every state in the union, maybe but two. And uh, I think that changed. I think people's attitudes about Las Vegas changed. I think it's a, it's a corporate environment now where before a lot, most of the casinos were owned by individuals. It's kind of a just a corporate community. And just the, the stigma of, of gaming and sports really kind of went away. And that gambling's always been there. Are you one of the believers in it's better to put some sunshine on it? If it's happening anyway, we's, we might as well know about it, regulate it, tax it, and perhaps learn what's going on. Well, people are, are gambling illegally anyway on sports, so why not uh, tax it and make it legal and and get the benefit of, of everybody's uh, bets? And I think it would help every state in the union, actually, if, if that was to occur. Now, for those who might not know your background, your family's background, used to control the Palms Hotel and Casino, what's the relationship between the players and sports? Do you see their synergies that your best customers would want to go and see these games? Definitely. One of the prerequisites of, of getting an NHL team was to sell 10,000 season tickets. And the requirement was that those season tickets had to be sold to locals. The league didn't want those tickets going to the to big corporations and buying blocks and then people not attending some of the games. So we, we knew that, uh, that, that there would be a, a local interest in the team here. Remember, the, the number one tourist destination for Las Vegas is Canada. So it fit right in. We knew that there would be a lot of people from Canada that would want to see like the Leafs play or, or the Canucks. Or, I feel like you're the, giving me a glimpse plane. into your marketing campaign. I can see the emails going out across Canada right now. Come in December. Come in January. Well, absolutely. And 17% of MGM's business is from, uh, from Canada. And it just it was just crazy. I, I, I didn't believe that that was the biggest uh, percentage of, of any international market. But and so that so we knew that going in and then we just knew there was a market for it. I mean, People are people, and I, I can never understand why Las Vegas could never have a sports team. You know, we, we love sports just like Chicago does or New York or L.A. I mean, we're, people are people. What do you say to those who say, however, that Vegas is a three-shift town, that at any time one shift is working and one shift is sleeping? That doesn't leave a whole lot of people to be going to sporting events. That's true, but a lot of the, the workers and, and the, the work in the casinos, they get flex time. They can take time whenever they want. A lot of them have bought season tickets. They'll give them to their friends. I've heard that, but it didn't seem to hurt us. <laughs> I mean, we were right around 15,000 season tickets, so it didn't seem to affect us. You mentioned it's a corporate atmosphere these days, and you're playing in T-Mobile Arena. It's a partnership between MGM and AEG. It wasn't so long ago where, again, you come from a casino background, where I thought, anyway, that the casinos didn't want anything that would lure customers away from the gaming floor. Has that changed? Is there is there a change in revenue streams that has led to that thinking? 
Well, I think there's a change in attitude. The attitude about you can't sequester a customer 24-7. He's got to be able to do other things. He can't be in a casino gambling away for 24 hours. Oh, you guys have certainly tried, though. No clocks and pumping oxygen into the casino floor, right? You've certainly tried. They tried. Yeah, absolutely. And (laughs) that was kind of the old way of thinking, to be honest. And now you have to give people options. There has to be entertainment. You have to give them a reason to come to Las Vegas. And now a lot of the games that that the Golden Knights will play will be during the week, some on weekends, but a lot of them during the week where the locals are off because the locals, their days off are like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So we'll have a bunch of games on those days. Is that something you tell the NHL when they're considering making the schedule that perhaps this is better suited to our market? Yes, absolutely. And that was one of the considerations that MGM looked at and one of the things that they liked because their weekends are full. MGM, they're full. They don't need help on the weekends. They need help during the week. And so this was an idea, and and it was great. It just worked out perfectly because we're hitting the locals. And also, you know, Sunday afternoon, Sunday matinees, that's another great day. So some a lot of the guests that may leave on Sunday now, if you're from Canada and you want, want to watch the Leafs play, you may stay Sunday night and leave Monday. So you get an extra day times a lot of rooms. We are chatting with Gavin Maloof. He's an investor in the Vegas Golden Knights, the first professional sports franchise, major pro franchise in Vegas. What about that first mover status? What did that do for the franchise? What did that enable you, Bill Foley, and the other investors to do? It just became a reality. You have to remember living here in Las Vegas for 30 years, as long as we've been here, everybody's talked about building an arena. You know, We've had 30 arena projects that have come and gone. Nobody seemed to get it done in it, and we've had probably 20 teams that have wanted to relocate here, and nobody's gotten it done. And then finally, this became a reality, and people say, wow, it really is going to happen. But there were a lot of skeptics early on because everybody was gun-shy. They never thought that this would happen. But then all of a sudden, not only did it happen once, boom, lightning strikes twice, here come the Raiders. Is the NFL in town good for the Vegas Golden Knights, bad for the Knights, and that you're competing with another entity? There's only so much sponsorship, so many disposable dollars. So is that good, or would you rather have the market all to yourself? We love the Raiders, and uh, Mark Davis is a good friend of mine. He's going to bring in another element here. I mean, this this <laughs> this town's going to explode. Las Vegas has everything, but it really has nothing if it doesn't have sport. And now with the, the Raiders coming here and the Golden Knights, I mean, it's, they can coexist. I mean, you look at Buffalo, you have the Bills and the Sabres. They coexist. They both sell out. You know, we play a, a, a different time than, than the football does, and I, I think there's enough for everybody. What sorts of things can you do together, if anything? There's not a lot you can do, you know, one sports team to another sports team, but maybe ch- uh, charitable programs that are good for the community, for the youth. The NHL wants to, to focus on youth hockey and building building more ice rinks in the uh, in the in the city, which is great for the youth. And then I'm sure NFL wants youth programs. So maybe there's something that they can do together. Were you at all taken aback by the price tag that Gary Bettman had set for this franchise? Five hundred million dollars for an <laughs> NHL team. You chuckle, but at some point you have to fork over some cash. It's Gary's world. We're just living in it. <laughs> Yeah, but the other well, owners I, shared. I understand why the other owner, they probably loved it. It goes right in their pockets. Sports is what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's gone up so dramatically. We sold the Kings, you know, for close to $600 million, And then the Bomber paid $2 billion for the Clippers. I mean, the, the prices just went through the roof. 
Uh, it's just sport, and, and they always seem to go up. No matter if the economy's in crisis or the economy's great, the sports franchise always seem to go up. Every time we went looking for a franchise to buy, every year that we waited, the price went up. So it's just it's crazy, but that's what it is. What do you find is the demographic of your customers so far? What's the age? Does it skew younger or not? It's a little younger, uh, but not really. <laughs> Something that's kind of funny, I think, I think a big majority of our season ticket holders I've never even seen a hockey game. You remember, we're, we're in Las Vegas. There's been ex- exhibition games here, but a lot of them have really never seen a hockey game. They bought season tickets, but they're, they're just, they want to be a part of something. And they want to be a part of history. And they want to be a part of what's happening here. And it's really very exciting. Uh, one question for you on Bill Foley, your managing partner. He opened some eyebrows when talking about the Raiders. He said he didn't think it was a wise move to spend public money, $750 million of it, on a sports team, on a building. He could have gone to other things like teachers and firefighters. What are your thoughts on public money being used for sports venues? Public money is, is good for stadiums and arenas. We've always been an advocate for public money. Public-private partnership. I think the private sector has to put in money, and I think the public has to put in money. Remember, when the team comes to the city, it's really the community that, that takes ownership of the team. So everybody's a part of it. And everybody wants to share in it, and I, 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 that's where I disagree. You stock this team with what's called an expansion draft, so all the current teams will leave a certain number of players available to the Golden Knights. How good can you be, and how fast will that come about? Well, who knows, but uh, you know, George McPhee, the, the GM, he's, he's really very knowledgeable, and he's got a lot of experience with the Capitals for many years. Uh, he, who knows, but he, he should put together a great team. I mean, it'll take time, just like anything else. Any expansion team takes time. You just don't come start the win right right off the bat. I mean, it'd be great if we won, but it's probably not reality. And we know great team on the on the ice requires a great team off the ice. What does your ownership group look like? We know about Bill Foley. We know about the Maloofs. Who else uh, possible investors in this franchise? Because putting that team together matters as well. Bill's put together... Really great organization. He's got the experts. He's, he's brought in the best people. Sports is a different business. It's like not. It's not like any other regular business. So he's put together a heck of a team with, with great experts, and we're looking forward to it. Thanks, Gavin. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Scott. Our thanks to Gavin Maloof, one of the owners of the NHL's Vegas Golden Knights, and attorney Jeffrey Kessler of Winston and Strong. And that wraps up this week's edition of Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Bond. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak on the business of sports. <laughs>